0: Today's reading is 1st Thessalonians 4:13 through 18. It can be found on page 1094 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with jesus those who have fallen asleep in him according to the lord's word we tell you that we who are still alive who are left till the coming of the lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep for the lord himself will come down from heaven and with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of god and the dead in christ will rise first After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words The Word of the Lord.
1: All right. Thank you, James, and I invite you to pray with me as we begin looking at this passage. Our God of grace, we find ourselves listening in on some old encouraging words for Christians about dealing with the very real confusion and disorientation around death. And this is where we just trust you. Um, coming into this Sunday, there's no particular reason that we have chosen to think about things that most days most of us would rather not think about. And so we we're trusting in you in a sort of extra way today that you have something in mind to be doing amidst us. We come into this room from all kinds of different places and stories, different kinds of occupations or seasons of life or reasons that we're here. We might come with some resistance this morning to being here. And we might come with joy or just numbness. Whatever the case may be, we sit here and we're, we're each and every one of us, We have small wounds and big wounds. We're more broken than we care to admit. Even those of us who think that we've done a pretty good job with our life, we just haven't lived long enough to get to one of those places where we realize that we can't build our life ourselves. And it's just not the foundation that lasts. So whatever place we find ourselves, we are more broken than we care to admit, and your story keeps drawing us to you to say we belong. You move towards messy people, and you draw broken people towards you, and you bring your love and your grace so that we're more loved than we care to admit, more loved than we ever dared imagine amidst our mess. And now with that kind of grace, do what you need to do this morning through these words, that we might hear... You, we might know you better, and that we might be changed because of it. Amen. Maybe you've heard of cryonics the practice or technique of deep freezing the bodies of people who have just died in the hope that scientific advances may allow them to be revived. In the future, a tank that uh, is made f- to hold a human body in liquid nitrogen. So, one of the things they do um, is they remove, they surgically remove the head and put it in a different compartment. The idea is with the advances in the future, even the Proven damage tissue damage that's caused by the deep freezing that even perhaps there will be technology to reverse or repair the extensive tissue damage that so far they 've been able to not get around cryonics it's kind of one of those things that you know if you have just you know hundreds of thousand dollars laying around and um, and you're also you know entering into that time of life where you're anxious, you're worried, and whatever you've kind of brought with you in the toolbox of life hasn't really provided anything um, that you think is going to be able to be robust enough to handle your death, then maybe you try cryonics. When we actually end up facing the end, we meet the limit of our reserves, And that can be really scary. That can be fundamentally disorienting. We find ourselves, and humanity for all of time, finds itself grasping at straws, taking shots in the dark with things like cryonics. Because life up to this point hasn't yet given us the proven tools in our toolbox to be able to confidently and reliably approach and get through the valley of the shadow of death. And so, um, people try cryonics as we stumble along in the darkness. One of the people who has tried it, um, who is now, whose body is now frozen, is um, legendary baseball player for the Red Sox and uh, Hall Hall of Fame slugger Ted Williams. And it was actually a little bit controversial, and there was some legal battle between the kids because it all rested on this note that was written, I think, on a napkin or on a scrap of paper. Um, But they ended up on this basis of this note um, freezing his body. The note went like this. I find it to be very insightful for what we're looking at today and what this passage is saying to us. J.H.W., that's one of his sons, Claudia, and Dad all agree to be put into biostasis after we die. This is what we want, to be able to be together in the future, even if it is only a chance. This is what we want, to be able to be together in the future, even if it is only a chance. It's a window into humanity's anxiety and confusion and despair, Life after death. And the agony that, uh, agony and the disconnection and separation that we feel. Listen to those words. To be together. We want to be together. That fear and agony of separation. And the circumstances behind our passage today um, aren't that unlike and really are exactly like that. Kind of that realm of agony of separation and that fear of disintegration, as the Thessalonian Christians, who are a very relatively new group of Christians who have just heard this message from Paul recently, more like months rather than years, maybe a little more than a year, maybe a little less than a year. It's a new community, new faith that they've grabbed hold of, but they're unsure now because of what they're going through. They're unsure if what the Apostle Paul has taught them and the framework he's given them is it really robust enough now that we're entering into some new troubles around as they're looking at life and death issues. See, they were living in... Um, it's very different than us because Christianity has been around for like, you know, almost 2,000 Easter's. And at the time, this church was hearing these words of Jesus that were promised, I will come soon. I will return again. And it, that seemed like, in their context, for sure that would really be soon. And they were living in kind of a way as if, uh, with, as if any day now Jesus could show up. And, and, you know, you get to think about it. You get to an end of the month and you're like, "Well, here we are in November. Huh. And he still didn't come. Maybe he'll come this month. That kind of month to month, instead of like we might feel now, if you're a Christian 2,000 years earlier, you might say, maybe next millennium. (laughs) They say, maybe next month. And with that kind of intense now kind of view that Jesus could come any day, and it's still true he could come any day, with that kind of outlook, suddenly now in this community some people have died. And this has rocked their faith and really put that whole, the whole belief in question. They're basically asking, well, what about these people, these brothers and sisters, these close loved ones of ours, uh, now what? Are they, are they out now? Because Jesus is going to come, right, for us, those who have a connection to him. What about those who died before he came? Are they just now going to miss out? That, that was just kind of how they were trying to piece it together, it seems. And so the Apostle Paul writes into this issue as, if you think about it, these, these Christians are, are just coming up, to, as humanity does over and over again throughout history, come up against the reality of life and death, the reality of, of just the shortness of life and the reality of death. And it's rocking their world. It's having them look around. What tools do we have to bring to this? Francis Bacon said, men fear death as children fear to go in the dark. And as the Thessalonians fear to go into the dark, Paul sends them a few things. He writes them a few things, and you see in this passage, uh, one of the things is that he lays out a sort of specific itinerary of the return of Jesus, and he cites it, he kind of gives the footnote in a sense to say this is something that has been passed on from Jesus himself. This is what Jesus has told us. And I'll just read it just to remind you what we just read. We believe that, he says, first he says in verse 15, or no, I'll go straight to 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, In other words, who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So that's kind of the this itinerary, you know, the, the end times itinerary. One of the interesting things that's often kind of pulled out of this um, and, and a little bit just interesting how it gets misread is that if you really are paying attention to the original language in the Greek, the word that's used for when you were meeting Jesus in the air is the way that a delegation, it's a very technical word that meant a group of people from a town would go out to meet royalty to welcome them into the town. This is not... We go up to disappear into the clouds to our eternal um, spirit world, which is, is not a, a Bible-centered belief. We go up so that Jesus returns to a new earth. No more tears, no more sadness, no more brokenness, no more pain, a new creation. So that's, that's just a little side note about how this passage can get misread. So that's the first thing Paul offers, this itinerary, which I don't know how much traction that has with you. It, it can sound on a first reading a little bit, I don't know if it just sounds a little hokey or a little, it just, it just kind of like a little not quite tangible enough to give us hope, but it's meant to make a point and to give real hope amidst these Christians as they face the reality of death. The one other thing that you would miss um, most likely, if you didn't kind of have it pointed out, was right before he gives that itinerary, he says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And it is, it is likely that that is actually a, a part of an early creedal statement, a statement that might be professed together when Christians get together, something that would have been memorized in the absence of, you know, Uh, The printing press and the easy passing around of scripture passages to know the story of Jesus. This would have been something memorized. We believe um, that Jesus died and rose. Again, I don't have it memorized. I have to read it because it was an ancient ancient creedal form. So the idea is that that sounds and looks to scholars like an ancient creedal form that Paul is using to, to remind them of their own beliefs to remind them what they've been taught, to remind them what they even say, so that their approach to death would just be a matter of practicing what they've already grabbed hold of. And he extrapolates from that and explains and interprets that phrase by saying, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So these are the things that Paul is doing to try to help the Thessalonian Christians, um, amidst their disorientation. And really, God's trying to speak to us today, and God's giving us this passage to say something to us. As much as we don't want to think about what's right across the street over there, and the reality of death, God wants to say something to us through Paul's words today. And I would say that the point, as I read this, the main anchor that seems to be drawn up from beginning to end of this passage, the thing that Paul really is anchoring this on, is the Christian's connection to Jesus. The Christian's connect- connection to Jesus. That, that The Christian, through Jesus, is connected to God. The Christian has joined together with God and is connected with God. Actually, that, I can see people looking up there. That can come down for a little bit. I'll have it back up in a minute. Thanks, Dan. When we think about, when we think about death, you know what one of the big problems is, and I already kind of forecasted it, that, one of that issue of separation, the issue that when you come to death, that what there is is there's this agony and this fear of being con- disconnected, and separated from the people you love and the things you love. And maybe if you're a person of faith, there's some residual fear there of, will I be or not be connected to God after I die? Fear of disconnection, fear of separation And that is exactly the thing that Paul gives as the anchor throughout this when at the beginning, at the end of his words of encouragement here, his emphasis is on being with Jesus. Let's just think for a second about how it becomes true that the Christian is with Jesus. The story of Jesus, the story of the Gospels, the story that that came to the Thessalonians and that comes to you every time you come here is the story of Jesus coming in and connecting and, and bridging the gap of separation between, whether you want to think about it, between heaven and earth. Jesus comes. We're approaching the season where we think about the incarnation of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, Bridging that gap. Connecting with a broken world. But the whole story of Jesus revolves around solving, in a sense, and addressing separation. Separation from God. And if you're considering Christianity, or if you're wondering what it really means to look into the story of Jesus, you need to look at that agony of the separation of Jesus on the cross. If you live in fear of separation and disconnection from those you love or from God or from this place, you need to see that Jesus came and didn't just bridge the gap of separation between us and God, but he made a permanent way for you to belong with God, to be connected with God. And that was through his own entering into the agony of death and separation. Jesus, more than anyone else, as you'll notice in our creedal statement, um, the Apostles' Creed, descended into hell? Why did the early Christians say that Jesus descended into hell? That was a way of just acknowledging that on the cross, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He entered into the, mo- the, the most grotesque, feared agony disconnect from God the Father. Somehow God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son of God, experienced grotesque, complete separation in that moment. And the reason is that so that, as a Christian, you'll never have to fear that you'll be disconnected in that way. He, that, that part of us that fears and is terrified of the disintegration of death and separation, that part of us There's something real and spiritual about that. There is a very real way, the Bible would say, that we we should have that as a priority in life, figuring out that issue of separation and disconnect, because we're made to be deeply connected to God the Father who made us, and our own brokenness and mess has pulled us away, but God decided on our behalf to draw us back together and to weave the relationship back so that we would never have to fear or worry about the disconnect that Jesus went head on into on the cross. And if you have that, if you're a Christian, that is your your anchor you come back to. And so you say, we believe that Jesus died and he rose again as a way of saying what's true about you. His death is your death. The agony has already been faced for you. His resurrection is your resurrection, and you will be with God. So you're with God now through Jesus. You live in Christ, if you're a Christian, and later you live in Christ when you die. And so that has led to interesting statements like the Apostle Paul saying, um, amidst great suffering and and getting close to being killed, saying things like, "I, I can't figure out what's better, to live or to die, you know, to... Both, basically saying, both of them mean with Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And so while all other religions leave you hanging and wondering if you're ever truly connected, if you can ever be really sure that the gospel says, in Jesus, it's not maybe it will be done for you, but it has been done, and you are connected, and it's permanent. So come to the cross of Jesus, and be connected. So uh, that picture, it's a picture from across the street. I take walks in the cemetery, um, probably once or twice a month, and you see interesting things. And a Christian who has this kind of anchor connection to God in place does well to do these kinds of things because it makes you check your toolbox Because the normal things to be frightened of and to fear separation and agony of, death, tombstones, this one seems to be, I think you can see on there something about 23 months and 5 days is the age of that infant who died. And it's in a row of other infants who died around the same time. Those kinds of things, the loss of a child. These kinds of things, and you guys all carry your own things, and you will carry your own things, that cause you to dig deep and look, what do I have at my disposal to bring to this, this great terror of death and, and fear of separation from all that I love? For the Christian, a walk through a cemetery is a chance to just grab, remember what resources you have at your disposal. It's an exercise in hope, in bringing, bringing back the hope. There's a catechism question and answer from um, the Heidelberg Catechism that goes like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I thought one of the best ways to just show this as we close, just to paint the picture, is to read from my friend's blog. I have a friend who has four kids, had four kids, and one of them died um, this year. Um, his kids, uh, he and his wife's kids are about the same age as my kids, um, pretty, pretty close, actually, to my four kids. And um, his son, uh, their second son, got cancer and it spread, and the treatments didn't work. And I was impressed. I don't, I don't know how ready I am to access the tools of Christ's death and resurrection if I was to face what my friend faced, but I was given a picture of how someone does. You can see the blog, blog post yourself in more extensive. There's pages and pages. It's Zeke Nelson, but the blog is called Exploration and Contemplation. So you can, if you have time, read more about the hope a Christian has. But here are some snippets over the time, over the, the um, middle of this year from my friend Zeke. The gospel gives confidence and hope. This is April 6, about a month before Peter would die. This confidence has allowed us to have open conversations with our son about the possibility of dying and dying soon. Look, even if Peter is healed completely and miraculously, he still needs the resurrection because someday he will die. Healing is temporary, pointing us to the eternal reality of the kingdom of God in which there will be no more death or dying, pain or sorrow. There are other families whose children have been sent to hospice care, meaning there is no possibility for further treatment. Their child is going to die. Some parents choose not to tell their son or daughter that they are going to die. The confidence that comes from our resurrection lets us openly talk about life and death. Because, where, O death, is your sting? April 11. So Monday morning, while doing a Bible study on the picture of the future in Revelation 21, I asked what God's servant John might have felt when the Spirit took him to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. The boys agreed that he would feel, um, that John would feel both happy and sad, happy to see it and sad that he couldn't stay. Isaac combined the words and said it felt shappy. So then I made it personal and said to Peter, Peter's the one with cancer. "'We know that you might die from cancer,' he nodded. "'If you get there before us, for us, how will you feel?' He described his feelings, and then I asked, "'And how would we feel if that happened?' He gave his own twist on, the, on their newly coined word, "'shad,' he said. "'Sad that I'm not with you, but happy that I'm there.' "'That's exactly it,' I said, "'although I think we would feel the sadness stronger.' But when we join you there, and then Peter finishes, then it will be happy. And Zeke says, And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, from there, for there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. There are a few tears for us to wipe away right now. So that is how we live and how we talk in the valley of the shadow of death. A month later, May 10. A conversation from Monday, May 8th, Peter, are you ready to see God face to face? Yes. Are you ready to meet Jesus? Yes. He writes, Peter Irenaeus Nelson was unafraid to the end, which came at 6:15 on Tuesday, May 9. He died in the confidence that he would enter the presence of God, where there is fullness of joy. We are grieving but comforted in the knowledge that he is with our Lord Jesus. This all happened in the midst of uh, my friend Zeke, who was a pastor in the Central Valley, getting called and being ready to move with his family to Belgium to his next church. Peter's fight with cancer and his death um, halted that, and they were in a waiting pattern. And eventually, they, once um, the fall came around, they were on their way to Belgium. He writes on October 2, just like a month ago. Belgium, like most of Europe, is nearly complete in its secularization. Isaac's religion teacher told the class, there is no heaven or hell. Heaven is when something good happens to you. Hell is when something bad happens. Zeke says, my son son Peter died in May. We faced death without fear because we believed in the real heaven, the presence of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. And then this month, November 1, Zeke writes, Several people here in his new church have shared how they can understand our sorrow with, with good reason. One woman lost a profoundly handicapped teenage daughter. Some have suffered multiple miscarriages, never having children of their own. One person lost grandmother, father, and brother in a short span. We have met many immigrants and refugees. Some fled because of threats against their life. We ache for our son, Peter. All these others ache for their lost ones. All of this raises a profound question. What is life about? Children die. Children get cancer and die. Families run from violence. People die in random accidents. What matters in life? What mattered to my son, Peter, was the love of God. Why would someone think that death would separate you from the love of God, he said a couple of weeks before he died. And he continued, death is how you get to God's presence. Friends, you can probably already feel and sense when this question says in life and in death. It's not just about death, but actually in facing death, we're driven back to the life part. And the call, really, of this passage to cultivate your connection to Christ now. If it is going to be true at all someday, cultivate that connection now. It is your anchor. It is your treasure. It is your hope. It is your security now and then. In times of light, when the sun is shining in your life, like a day that's supposed to be cloudy and a shaft of sunlight comes through that window. On those days, your connection to Christ is your anchor and is real, and on the days when the darkness is there, and when you're being threatened to have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Let's pray together. Our great God, We hear these words, um, and we let them sit. Whether we wonder how relevant they are to our current situation. Whether we feel like we're living in darkness or feel like we're living in light. Or we feel like we're living in a boring gray. Help us, as this passage eventually is, is driving home for the Christians in Thessalonica. Help us. Not to live in the slumber and numbness as our world does, as if in the darkness. But help us to live as if we are connected to God, connected to you, connected to Christ, and living in the light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.